0: Hello from the Financial Times in London. I'm Katie Martin and this is News in Focus, where we offer our insights into the stories that matter. Russia's president, Vladimir Putin, has been in power for two decades and now it looks as though he intends to stay indefinitely. This month, he launched an overhaul of the country's power structures that could allow him to extend his control after his official term ends in 2024. With me to discuss this is Max Seddon, our Moscow correspondent, and Ben Hall, Europe editor. the Federation, of the Federation of the Federation the of the the of the That was a clip from Mr Putin's State of the Nation speech this month when he announced a constitutional shake-up billed as a modernising move to decentralise power. Does it actually do this? And what are the main changes affecting parliament, the presidency and the State Council of Regional Governors?
1: Well, as ever in Russia, there's a difference between what these changes do on paper and what they really mean. The changes slightly weaken the presidency, in favor of parliament and the prime minister on the one hand and this advisory body, the state council on the other. So parliament gets more power over the cabinet judges and security services. Future presidents will be limited to two total terms in office, so they can't step aside and come back like Putin did from 2008 to 2012. And the state council, which is made up mostly of governors and doesn't really have more than ceremonial functions will have new powers over the entire Russian government apparatus.
0: So what will this state council do exactly? How much power will it have compared to the current setup with the presidency and the parliament?
1: This is a good question because no one really knows as yet. The state council is going to coordinate all of the branches of Russia's government and define the main directions of Russia's domestic and foreign policy and all of its socio-economic priorities, which sounds like really everything and nothing at the same time. What it doesn't actually do is make the president subservient to it, but what it does do, given that they've introduced these new limits, that would appear to bar Putin from being president again is make the president weaker and give Putin a chance to have a foot in and out the door. So he won't necessarily have to be involved in the mundane day-to-day business of running the country, but he can still be on TV, have meetings with all the dignitaries, be loved by the people, and have the final say over everything. One thing that's important to point out that some sources have told me about, is that on the surface of it, this is quite similar to what happened in Kazakhstan last year, where Nursultan Nazarbayev had been running Kazakhstan for 30 years, since before even the Soviet Union collapsed, and he stepped aside uh, to take up this new title that's uh, very amorphous. He's called Father of the Nation. It's not really clear what his responsibilities are. And obviously, in fact, he's still clearly in charge of anything. Putin is much more legalistic than that. People I've spoken to say that it's very important for Putin to have a legal mechanism through which he can continue to hold power. So that's what it appears this is intended to do.
0: So this combination of legal mechanisms and this sort of father of the nation idea, is that at the heart of this notion that it is a bid by Mr. Putin to hold on to power after 2024?
1: I think absolutely. Putin hasn't said what he intends to do, but at this stage, after being in power for 20 years, it would have been logical for him to groom a successor. And instead, what this has done is open the door to him having ultimate control as long as he wants. When you speak to people who know him, they say that he feels that everything will just fall apart if he's not around. When he was prime minister and Dmitry Medvedev was president, Medvedev didn't veto in the UN Security Council the Western attempt to launch a no-fly zone over Libya, which led to Gaddafi being overthrown. And this is often cited as one of the reasons that Putin decided to come back, because he gave the key to someone else and everything went to hell.
0: So Ben, tell us more about the history of Mr. Putin's presidency. What are his aims and what have his achievements been over the past 20 years?
2: Well, I suppose you would probably divide up Putin's 20 years in power into two phases. We may have just entered a third or we may have entered a third a few years ago. But the first phase was obviously sort of consolidating authority, restoring control of the state after the chaotic Yeltsin years, and taking on some of the wayward oligarchs who were clearly pilfering state assets and becoming even more powerful than the Russian president and the other bits of the state apparatus. So the first phase was very much re-establishing state control and strong leadership, which. the Russian people seem to be immensely grateful for, judging by his high popularity ratings. The second phase, I suppose, is a phase of confrontation with the West. Mm -hmm. I mean, historians will be arguing for years over to what extent the West was the guilty party in terms of provoking Russian pushback. But, you know, Russian anger over the expansion of NATO and the EU and then so-called colour revolutions, which certainly Mr Putin and his acolytes felt were sponsored, if not orchestrated, by Western powers to destabilise Russia and to curtail Russia and to hem Russia in. And obviously you saw that with the war in Georgia in 2008 and then the annexation of Crimea in 2014 and the war in eastern Ukraine. And as Max mentioned, the war in Libya and arguably the war in Iraq as well were also seen as examples of Western powers not abiding by international law and using might for their own naked self-interest. And if they can do it, then... Russia can do it as well to follow its interests. And obviously now we've entered a sort of slightly different phase where we're trying to figure out whether Putin's new push, I suppose push since 2016, of exploiting hesitations, weaknesses in Western democracies and power with the interference in the US election in 2016, support for far-right movements in Europe, destabilisation in the Balkans, and of course, most significantly, its role in the Middle East, propping up Bashar al-Assad in Syria and essentially displacing the US as the kind of prime actor there, whether this is a sort of new phase of the expansion of Russian influence or just the end of the second phase.
0: As you say, he's extremely popular, although there are cracks in that. He's popular at home, but does he need new power structures to maintain his grip
2: now? I suspect he does because he realises that, although he was well-respected by the Russian people for the improvements in their daily lives for a long time, steady improvement in the economy in the first phase that I mentioned and in improvements in sort of Russian quality of life, you know, life expectancy has gone up very sharply. And of course, that phase of belligerence and confrontation with the West played very well in terms of domestic popularity, all helped, of course, by a very controlled democracy and a lack of free and robust media, I suppose. But I think his popularity is dipped and Russian distrust of him is growing and that must be quite an alarming sign. And I suspect dispensing with the government as he did earlier this month is also partly about trying to insulate himself from the disappointments of that government and trying to put in place a new system that can be a source of new legitimacy and popular support.
0: So Max, the announcements from Mr. Putin are not the only big shake-up we've seen in the past few days and weeks. Also, Dmitry Medvedev, his long-time political ally, stepped down as Prime Minister. How do you interpret that? What does it mean?
1: Well, this actually feeds into a lot of Ben was just saying about why he needs these structures of power. Because if you think about it, Putin has faced this before, back in 2008 when he was not allowed to serve a third consecutive term. And so Medvedev was made the president and Putin moved to the prime minister's office. This draws the line under Medvedev's career because it shows you can't have someone who is equal to Putin while there is Putin. Medvedev is exceptionally loyal. To Putin, he's been with him for 30 years, but the very fact of not just stepping aside for Putin back in 2011, 2012, but then also becoming prime minister in charge of the economy and being the target for all the growing popular anger about how for the last half decade real incomes have declined, It constantly weakens his position and Medvedev gradually became this figure of fun almost. He was involved in this enormous corruption scandal when Alexei Navalny, who is the biggest opposition leader, he released this video that has more than 30 million views on YouTube now, exposing Medvedev's lavish lifestyle. It sparked protests in more than a hundred cities across Russia, which has never happened before. And it was clear that Putin couldn't just step down again to maybe even become prime minister without changing the system in 2024 and make Medvedev the president with the same power as Putin because people weren't just going to take him seriously enough so what this does is it really draws the line, along with the changes that were made to the president's powers, that there will never be another Putin. Putin will go down as this unique figure in Russian history. If you speak to people who know him, they will all tell you that Putin is constantly obsessed with his legacy and what his role will be as this transformative figure in Russian history.
0: I almost hate to use the phrase, but this sounds something like a cult of personality.
1: Absolutely. There is a cult of personality of Putin. In several places in Russia, when he was making this speech, announcing the changes, he was projected onto the facades of enormous skyscrapers that looked like the ads in Blade Runner. And one reason, I think, why they've decided to do this is, as Ben mentioned, his approval ratings, they might be the envy of every Western politician. I'm sure Boris Johnson would kill to have them but they have still been hovering over historic lows because ordinary Russians are struggling economically, and Medvedev had become a target for this because Putin's popularity generally for what he's done for Russia over the last 20 years, both domestically and globally, has insulated him to a certain extent from that. One other thing I would say is uh, don't necessarily count Medvedev out this isn't necessarily the end of his career because he was moved to become deputy head of the security council which is a new position reporting directly to putin and when putin announced this he said and i'll paraphrase there is the prime minister's job which is looking after the economy and social welfare and all these things that it's an open secret that Putin is completely bored with at this point of having done it for 20 years. And Dmitry Anatolyevich has done a great job there, but let's not forget that he was the president. He knows about security, and that's president stuff. And so now he's going to do this important job running all the security work on the Security Council. So it's certainly not a promotion, but it's not necessarily a demotion either. And his loyalty to Putin means that you certainly can't count out him playing an important role in years to come.
0: Tell us about the new prime minister. What kind of role will he play? Mikhail
1: Mishustin, the new prime minister, is someone you probably didn't know about unless you'd read the profile in the FT that Chris Jowles, our economics editor, wrote of him last summer. He wasn't really known at all outside policy circles, but he had the biggest achievement that anyone could point to, which was over the space of 20 years, He basically took this decrepit, bankrupt, poorly functioning budget collection system in the government, and he took it online. You ask anyone, they will tell you that Russia has the most advanced tax collection system in the world. And no one else really had an achievement like that that they could point to. He has this great technocratic reputation. He's not the only person who has it. There are some very prominent advocates for technocratic reforms among people who know Putin much better than Shusten does, Herman Greff, the CEO of Spearbank like say kudrin the former finance minister but they would come with a lot of political baggage and mishustin is someone who's been a civil servant all his life he's not known to have had any political ambitions what he is able to do is be friends with everyone because when you're the tax minister you not only have to take on a lot of vested interests but you also have to build a lot of relationships with a lot of different people. So he was someone who could, on the one hand, get along very well with people who are in Putin's inner circle. He plays hockey with them and with Putin himself, and at the same time have really good relationships with the IRS in America. When the Russian bureaucracy, finding someone like that is quite rare. He has a pretty difficult job because his main task is going to be implementing this enormous half-trillion-dollar spending program called the National Projects, which two years ago Putin announced when he was reelected as a flagship achievement of this six-year term, and they really haven't gone anywhere. There's been constant squabbling about how they're going to fund it, what role Russia's corporate sector is going to play, and all the while, ordinary Russians have continued to hurt. This negatively impacts uh, Putin's approval ratings, so that is going to be the order of the day.
0: Right. So, is this where this kind of high politics meets real life? Is this the bit that will hopefully raise living standards?
1: Well, Russia has the money to raise living standards. They have one of the largest current account surpluses and foreign exchange reserves in the world. The economy may have not been doing very well, but it's been managed by a highly competent team of professionals and they've created this enormous nest egg most of which is stored in something called the national welfare fund which is from excess oil and gas revenue and this has essentially been stashed away for a rainy day in case anything happens on the geopolitical front that could impact Russia badly, as happened during the Ukraine crisis in 2014, you have to guard not just against what other people might do to you, but the consequences of Russia starting the war in Ukraine and invading Crimea. How much of this is going to trickle down is a different question. There is a lot of talk at the moment about spending some of this money domestically, and separately, Putin also announced more social spending that is aimed at teachers and boosting the birth rate but it's a question of whether this is really going to make that much of a difference because there aren't any measures that are going to tackle inequality russia is one of the most unequal countries in the world credit suisse and its global inequality report actually said that there has to be a separate category for Russia because it's so unequal and one thing that Mishustin has already said that he isn't going to do is change the 13% flat tax rate in Russia because this is something that was considered one of the great achievements when Russia started reforming its tax collection because 13% might not seem very much to you and me but when you're starting from zero which was the average tax payment rate before They started doing this, it's an enormous achievement. They didn't really have any proper tax revenue at all.
0: So Ben, what's your take on how the economy's been performing?
2: Well, we've got to remember that Russia's economy is about the size of Spain's and it's hugely dependent on natural resources, particularly oil and gas. At a time when the world is beginning to wean itself off oil, gas will take a bit longer, but it will eventually come. It desperately needs to diversify and set up a proper market economy with proper service sectors and with wealth spread well beyond Moscow. And it's got huge, huge challenges which Mr Putin, certainly in the latter phase, has shown very little interest in really getting to grips with. And that's presumably where popular legitimacy will come from, if he can actually unleash some of the reformers in Moscow to get to grips with these problems.
0: And just very quickly, do we have any sense of what the rest of the world thinks about these changes in Russia?
2: Well, I think most foreign observers are taking the conclusion that Vladimir Putin's here to stay for quite a long time. <laughs> Seems
0: like a reasonable bet. Thanks, Max, and thanks, Ben. Don't forget, if you missed our recent episodes on Merkel, the multilateralist, the problem of using men as the default model in data, or Greece's new mood of optimism, you can subscribe and listen to them all on the usual podcast platforms.